Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Rev Then Rule of Law podcast. My name is Oliver Garner. My guest today is Professor Jeff King. Jeff is a professor of law at University College London, and he is the director of research at the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law. He has previously acted as a legal advisor to the House of Lords Select Committee on the Constitution. Today we will be discussing Jeff's regulatory conception of the rule of law and its application to contemporary challenges. Jeff, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Your most recent contribution on the concept of the rule of law is part of the upcoming Cambridge Handbook of Constitutional Theory, co-edited with Richard Bellamy. Your paper breaks down concepts of the rule of law into two approaches, legal essentialist and limited government. Could you explain this for our listeners? Sure. Uh, it's a rather big question. Um, so there, there has for a long time been a distinction that's been floated by many between formal and substantive conceptions of the rule of law. The former category included conceptions that emphasized the formal properties that make for a well-functioning legal system, such as law should be general, prospective, open and clear, and be applied by independent and impartial judges. There shouldn't be excessive executive discretion is one of the other elements. Now, some theories suggested that access to justice is also required by this formal conception. There's some variation. Now, leading examples in that tradition include the famous book by Lon Fuller, The Morality of Law, and of course, the famous essay, The Rule of Law and Its Virtue in Joseph Raz's book, The Authority of Law. Now, we can contrast those formal approaches with substantive theories and these substantive theories included all of the elements that the, the formal accounts uh, included, but they also tended to claim that the rule of law required the protection of human rights. And a version of that argument could be attributed to scholars like Ronald Dworkin, and I think most famously and notoriously, it was the account offered by the late judge, Lord Tom Bingham. And you'll see elements of that substantive approach in the early book by Friedrich Hayek, uh, The Constitution of Liberty. Now, when I was writing about the rule of law, to come around to your question here, mm -hmm. I found that the grounds for distinguishing between formal and substantive conceptions was not always illuminated well. So why did these thinkers develop their list of rule of law features? Where did they start from? And I posit in my chapter, and I derive this in part uh, from discussions with others, and most notably from uh, a very good Australian legal scholar, Julian Semple, mm -hmm. that we can distinguish between two basic theoretical approaches to the subject. One of them tries to derive an account from the, of the rule of law from a theory about what the essence of legality is, and I call this the legal essentialist approach. So it says that a legal system has to have certain things to function as law instead of just function as raw political power. And both Lon Fuller and Joseph Raz define the rule of law in that kind of way. And so does Jeremy Waldron, to pick another theorist who's broadly in that tradition. So they ask, what are the structural conditions for subjects to be guided by law and for law to function as law? Mm -hmm. And their answer to those questions essentially is what their account of the rule of law is. You can't be guided by law unless it's open, clear, stable perspective and is applied by independent judges. Sure. So the rule of law theory is derived from a theory of what the law itself is. But the other tradition is quite different. It emphasizes that the rule of law is a normative political value, something like liberty or dignity. And it's derived from a political tradition, liberalism, that emphasizes the importance of individual liberty. That's been called the limited government approach. That label I've taken from the great work of Julian Semple. Now the rule of law in this tradition is a normative value it's one that states that without legal controls, 
political authority over the individual is arbitrary and therefore unjustified. The basic idea is that without law, there's only arbitrary and unaccountable power, and that is incompatible with the very compelling idea of liberty. So some famous statements in the history of political philosophy evoke this kind of idea, uh, even if the modern conception is different from the, what those philosophers were thinking. So for example, Aristotle said it's better to live under the governance of laws and not men, and the writer James Harrington uh, exclaimed that where society is founded on the foundation of common rights and interests. So all of these accounts see the rule of law as a value that emerges not from some deep account of what a legal system is or needs to have to be a legal system, but rather it postulates a role of law in controlling sovereign power in a society that respects liberty. And that kind of impulse, I'm arguing, is behind the modern preoccupation with understanding the rule of law as the legal antithesis of arbitrary power. And it's not hard to see, you know, once you think of the rule of law in that way, why the protection of human rights comes onto the list, because mm -hmm. it's really in, in interfering with people's fundamental rights that you see arbitrary power in its most dangerous uh, form. Uh, I should add, though, that the intellectual basis for including protection of human rights is often mysterious. It's not always explained well, even within that tradition. And some writers in that tradition, like Gerald Postema, deny a very clear link um, to these two things. Now, both of these approaches to defining the rule of law have their adherence. The first, I'd say, is more common among legal theorists. The second is uh, closer to the way it's deployed in most legal systems and international documents, and also in the work of theorists like Postuma, who I've just mentioned, mm -hmm. Martin Krieger, Julian Semple, and myself. Um, it seems to me that the limited government account perhaps takes a more contextual approach to what the function of law is within the broader context of a society rather than just that narrow focus exactly. on law itself. And you argue in your paper that this limited government account is more persuasive than the legal essentialist account because of how it deals with what you call free puzzles, anarchy and order, discretion and the historical background of the rule of law. Could you summarise this for our listeners? Sure. Um, <clears throat> so I was led to this these criticisms by a working with a series of intuitions about how we should understand the rule of law idea. So I'll address the first and I'd say least significant of these objections. I felt that there is an important intellectual history and background to thinking about the rule of law idea. It doesn't start with A.V. Dicey in the beginning of the 20th century or the late 19th century. It's found in constitutions and legal documents around the world, and this intellectual heritage, the background, you know, references to Aristotle and Locke and so on, mm -hmm. is part of the appeal of the idea and how this, the idea came into the lexicon around the world. Now, unfortunately, the formalist approach, for the most part, totally disregards that background, uh, whereas the limited government approach makes great sense of those canons in mm -hmm. articulating its vision of the rule of law. And so this point is not really a conceptual flaw with the formalist tradition, but it does point out its limitations, uh, its explanatory appeal for, for explaining those values that happen to be recognized in so many political systems. Mm -hmm. So the second, and I think more serious issue, is that the formalist approach doesn't explain well the intuition that anarchy is incompatible with the rule of law. In my view, anarchy is a real social problem, just like tyranny. And by anarchy, I mean here a lack of legal regulation, a sort of Wild West type scenario. The approaches taken by Fuller and Raz, and to an extent Waldron, don't really explain well why anarchy is not compatible with the rule of law. And in fact, Raz even says that the rule of law is a value that exists 
to deal with the negative consequences that are produced by law itself. I think that's wrong. Uh, we need law in our lives to help us navigate a range of social dangers, and many of those dangers arise in the private sphere and are not due to actions of sovereigns. The most obvious of these problems is you know, interpersonal violence. So sexual violence, theft, robbery, and at, at the more political level, paramilitary groups and militias and so on. Yeah. Now, the legal essentialist tradition didn't have a good account of those things that should be regulated by law. It only had an account of how law should be created and how it should work if you were going to have law in the first place. And I think that's a deficiency. The limited government approach, on the other hand, has a very clear answer here. You need law to control arbitrary, interpersonal coercive power of one person over another. And that's a short and snappy answer, I think, to the question posed. And it's largely correct. And it corresponds with our considered intuitions, I think, of the rule of law idea. So that's two to one, I think, uh, two nil, rather, I should say, for the limited government conception. And, and so not to take too long here, I'll just move on quickly to the third issue. It, um, the issue here for the formalist approach mainly, but also for the limited government approach, is how it deals with the problem of administrative discretion. So the formalist approach either denies there's any issue with broad administrative discretion, that's Joseph Rouse's approach, or it's ambivalent about it, doesn't really have a well-explained theory for how to deal with that as a rule of law issue, and that's Lon Fuller's approach. Um, you see that in his great work, The Forms and Limits of Adjudication, for instance, as well as statements he makes in The Morality of Law. Now, Raz says, because he's, he's more precise on this, he says it's true the rule of law is incompatible with the modern welfare and regulatory state, but that's not a problem because the rule of law is only one constitutional value. There are others. Now, I think that argument fails to reconcile the rule of law with our other constitutional values, and also, of course, that we need to reconcile them to, to create a scheme of governance that is a more or less coherent whole. We need to do the same with our conceptions of democracy and human rights, I think, as leading theorists like Dworkin and, and Waldron and Bellamy and others have done. So I think you can have, you know, this type of value pluralism and, and policy trade-offs at the margins of policy. Uh, but you can't really convincingly argue that the entire modern welfare state is at odds with a fundamental constitutional value and that you're not troubled by this. Sure. I think that's just not tenable. The limited government approach is a bit better in this regard. Uh, it posits that discretion should be structured by law and where that's possible, but also that accountability for in judicial review of administrative action is another way you can reconcile it with the rule of law. However, uh, some writers who adopt a libertarian version of the rule of law under the limited government conception, and you can see how the label conveys support, uh, they advance this libertarian conception. And so this issue is a bit of a problem in that tradition as well. What you said there about anarchy, I find very interesting because I've often thought that perhaps the purpose of law is to prevent violence from below at a societal level, and then the rule of law becomes necessary to prevent that violence then occurring from above from the state once it has been monopolized. Mm -hmm. You mentioned there about the possibility of sliding into libertarianism and you say in your paper I think that this can be a risk with the limited government conception that it could become too hostile towards all forms of state power yes. and the functions that the state has to provide for its citizens. Mm -hmm. So you therefore propose a regulatory conception of the rule of law instead. Could you explain for our listeners how this conception incorporates substantive policy objectives such as the welfare state? Sure. Sure. I think um, I'll, I'll just 
start with uh, uh, an analogy to uh, the role of the police and the police power mm -hmm. in a modern state. So you won't hear people like Hayek and other libertarians saying that broad police powers uh, are incompatible with the rule of law because they think that police powers are necessary to provide defense of property and security in the modern state. Sure. And so police, the existence of a state police is to some extent actually an agent of legal values and legal order and legal security. And I'm thinking we can look at administrative, uh, the administrative state in a similar kind of way. So let me explain the connection at a theoretical level. The limited government tradition to the rule of, uh, um, to the rule of law emphasizes the importance of controlling arbitrary power with law. And the main move I'm making in the paper in which I think is an evolution rather than any revolution of, of this tradition, is to make the case that the values of respect for individual freedom that guide the limited government tradition should also require us to recognize the problem of private arbitrary power and make the case that that, that also should be legally regulated. Other writers have begun to know this as well, notice this I should say, uh, they think that private coercive power, like militias and sexual predators, etc., that they need to be legally regulated and controlled in a rule of law society. Now, I go a step further than, than any of them do, though, in, in the following way. My argument is that private non-consensual exploitation should likewise come within the ambit of what requires legal regulation uh, by the rule of law value. And that's what I call the social dimension of the rule of law. You might ask, I'm sure you're thinking, what is exploitation exactly? That sounds a bit Marxist. Is that what this is? No, uh, exploitation is not just a Marxist concept. I use a non-Marxist, entirely liberal account of exploitation. And there are various accounts of it within liberal theories, but I stipulate to a particular version. I'm concerned with non-consensual exploitation. I say that because much of the philosophical literature is concerned with the wrongness of genuinely consensual exploitation. That's mm -hmm. your sort of situation where the dodgy boxer promoter brings on a boxer and exploits the heck out of them and takes much of their earnings. Sure. But it's all consensual, right? It's mm -hmm. all above board. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about where people really have no other choice but to accept the arrangement. Yes. So the definition I adopt is that exploitation occurs where one person takes unfair advantage of another person, i.e. they wrong them in some way, where that latter person has no real choice but to accept the arrangement. Now, the classic scenario uh, that where this happens is um, the sort of rescue scenario, where someone who has a vehicle charges someone who's stranded an exorbitant rate to carry them to safety. Um, in, in the 19th century, other examples of exploitation were where factory owners made extraordinary profits while forcing workers to work in unsafe conditions for very long hours. For a long period of time. Now, my argument really is that where this situation occurs, the rule of law requires that the state intervene and regulate these practices with a credible scheme that can prevent exploitation, just like they should, under the rule of law, provide a form of criminal law to control things like sexual harassment and violence. Mm. This idea seems to make the rule of law something that can lead to active political action rather than just being a restraint on such action. Exactly so. Hence um, the regulatory conception. Indeed. And we both work for the Bingham Centre for the Rule of Law. We've been active in this policy space. So 
based on what you've said about this regulatory conception, do you believe that at present there is a conception among policymakers and politicians that rule of law academics and policy actors seek to use the limited government approach to frustrate policies by insisting on restrictions? And do you believe that your regulatory conception could reconcile NGOs as partners in the achievement of policy goals rather than being simply opponents to government actors? So I think that there was a time when the rule of law idea was used politically to try to limit government mm -hmm. in unhelpful ways. That was this case, especially in the late 1980s, under the governments of Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in this country and President Ronald Reagan in the United States and elsewhere at the time. It was the time of the Washington Consensus in international affairs where neoliberalism was promoted and pushed around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there is excellent work looking at this phenomenon in international relations as well. Now, Today, societies like the Federalist Society and the Mont Pelerin Society continue to use this version of the idea in an anti-regulatory way. That use of the term has had much less sway outside of the United States. Yeah. In my experience of discussing the idea and reviewing legal responses to COVID-19 around the world and other work, I found that that libertarian conception is quite hard uh, to find. In fact, when I've lectured on that type of conception as a problem, I've often had to spend a lot of time convincing the audience that people actually think of the rule of law in that kind of way. Mm -hmm. Now that said, I, I think that a pro-regulatory conception of the rule of law, such as mine, can make it clear that administrative uh, discretion can be seen as as not always, but often a positive value within a theory of the rule of law. So NGOs might be, for instance, a bit more careful at throwing rhetoric about you know, the problems with a large nanny state, for instance, as they did during the COVID-19 crisis, and start seeing that a proper concern for liberty suggests that at times we do need a, a robust state to take private autonomy seriously by giving people rights and remedies against private exploitation and coercion. I think that goes in line with how many in, in the third sector think about the role of the state in modern society. Um, but it could bring their usage of the rule of law idea, I think, a bit more carefully into line with that view. It'd be interesting to see whether what you were talking about, this libertarian instrumentalization of the rule of law, could arise again in Argentina with this oh, <laughs> new indeed. government. Yes. Um, well, there's a lot on the so-called Chicago Boys, yeah. a series of public officials and uh, economists trained in the University of Chicago basically importing the ideas of neoliberalism and also these kinds of conceptions of the rule of law into um, into the southern rim and in Latin America I suspect. Yeah, so I think we'll try to trace yes. out of them. And last year Cass Sunstein also released a working paper simply titled The Rule of Law. Do you think there is a greater need for academic conceptualization of the concept following its greater politicization in the last years with these examples of real world rule of law backsliding? So I, I tend to think that the opposite tendency is probably afoot. Um, I think people and organizations in the field will probably be somewhat lukewarm towards, certainly towards a more ambitious concept mm -hmm. of the rule of law, and perhaps uh, to more extended debates that focus on disagreement about the rule of law and people's theories to try to resolve that disagreement. Uh, I think that the, at least at a, when we're talking about the real world, 
I think many organizations like the Bingham Center and others, and I'm not speaking for the Bingham Center here, but I've perceived this over the years from various organizations, they will be thinking, let's focus on the areas that are agreed and um, focus on protecting the um, a version of the rule of law that is very widely accepted. Mm -hmm. And that means gravitating towards the thinner versions of the rule of law that are still under very serious political threat. In other words, I think they'll say it's not time to push the boundaries, it's time to batten down the hatches and dig the trenches. And I, I do recognize and respect that concern on a practical level. But I would add that it shouldn't stop theorists uh, mm. like Sunstein or me from trying to advance the idea. And there are many unregulated areas of human activity like social media and AI and, and protection of workers increasingly which are very serious concerns for the rule of law and liberty at present. And I think our account of the rule of law should, should recognize that. On that theme of protecting the currently agreed version of the rule of law, I thought we'd conclude our conversation with a matter that's closer to home. Mm -hmm. As the United Kingdom is currently embroiled in a rule of law debate over the safety of Rwanda bill. Yeah. You've recently written for the UK Constitutional Law Association blog about how this may not only threaten breaching the UK's international law commitments on refugee protection, yeah. but also it may risk the balance between the judiciary and parliament. How do you foresee the situation evolving? And can agreement on the importance of the rule of law be restored in the UK in the future? Well, um, I think that there is how it would evolve um, politically uh, in terms of the passage of the bill before Parliament right now and how it could evolve legally. And the, unfortunately, the, the legal evolution will depend a lot on how it evolves politically. Mm -hmm. So um, let me just start with the bill. So I think the government wants to pass this bill at all costs and put the first flight in the air, that is to remove people to Rwanda to have their asylum claims processed there. Now, I can't quite judge at the moment how much the House of Lords will... Um, insist on very potent amendments, but I think it will insist on some. Mm -hmm. All the signals say so. And by insist, I mean that they will go down to the wire. If the government refuses their amendments, the Lords might try to insist on them when it comes back to them, which is a less common situation than a simple defeat in the Lords. Mm -hmm. um, now, there's two kinds of amendments that are being floated at the moment, which are material to how this plays out. One set tries to create a condition that needs to occur, for instance, a report of a committee, that, that, that has to occur before the whole scheme is brought into place, the scheme that allows people to be removed to Rwanda. And the condition is that the Rwandan government, a committee has to determine that the Rwandan government is complying with the arrangements that are foreseen in the UK-Rwanda Treaty on processing asylum claims. Mm -hmm. Now that treaty provides that um, this this process has to work properly, there's no threat of anybody being removed from Rwanda to another country, and so on. Now that approach which says, let's have a committee report on this, or let's have an independent reviewer confirm that this is the case before the scheme goes ahead, I think that's a major risk for the government, uh, because it could mean that the scheme doesn't get going properly before an election takes place, and then it will look like a major climb down for the Prime Minister. I'm sure that he'll be advised uh, of that. So the other approach that they might use in the Lords is to widen the circumstances under which, in the under the scheme in the bill, an individual can challenge their removal to Rwanda under the 
under the provisions of the bill. So the bill tr at the moment tries to limit the ability to challenge uh, deportation here uh, in a very extreme way, uh, but it does use vague language that we can probably expect the courts later to interpret in a very wide fashion. Mm -hmm. That's where rule of law considerations come in, really. Um, uh, so the scheme basically says that if there are exceptional circumstances of facing a personal individual risk in Rwanda and that that claim doesn't challenge the general safety of Rwanda and it doesn't in any way try to argue that that, per that the person raising the claim could be removed from Rwanda to another country, then they can bring the legal claim. Now, so what it means you can only challenge uh, being removed to Rwanda if you can show that you in particular face a particular threat in the country of Rwanda. And that's a quite narrow ground uh, to challenge it at because the, the essence of the Supreme Court judgment that, um, that, that found a previous scheme unlawful was that there is a very high risk of people being removed from Rwanda yes. abroad. So some of the amendments are going to try to remove uh, the block on courts being able to consider the threat of refoulement, which is being sent back to the country of origin, or even just sending people to other countries in Africa, for instance. Yes. And um, I think, to be honest, a smart prime minister would let those amendments go through if they want to get the bill through. And then he could go to the election saying, he got the bill through, the flights are going to start, but there's a legal scheme in place now that makes it easier to challenge removals. And then, so on the rule of law question for the courts, I think we're, we're heading for a very difficult position for them because plainly the obvious point of the bill is going to be to try to make it so that almost everybody is removed to Rwanda to have their asylum claim processed. But there'll be provisions of the bill that, that although they only initially were aimed to open a trickle of claims, they can be widened and allow more claims to come and the judges will have to make sense of those provisions as amended and and they'll be put in the position of having to read the bill in a way that they know government ministers didn't want it to be read yes well it'll be very interesting to see whether the upcoming election this year could show us how democracy can influence these rule of law developments as we've seen in poland so yes i say thank you very much jeff for this engaging conversation today and I'd encourage our listeners to follow RevDem on X, LinkedIn, Facebook, on Instagram for further such conversations in the future. Thank you very much again. Thank you for having me.